Hello! Welcome to the Healthy Habits Happy Home Podcast, hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we will bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I'm Marcy Ann. And I'm Tamara. And today we're excited to have not only one, but two guests joining us today, Dr. Lori Ann Vallis and Hannah Coyle Osbel. Dr. Vallis is a professor in the Human Health and Nutritional Sciences Department here at the University of Guelph, and Hannah is a PhD student in Human Health and Nutritional Sciences, whose research focuses on the field of biomechanics. Today, they are here to talk to us about physical activity and sleep. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, we're really excited to have you both here and have this conversation. To get us started, can you each tell us a bit about yourselves and your roles and experience with the Guelph Family Health Study? Sure, I'll start. So uh, my role within the Guelph Family Health Study is to lead the physical activity and sleep analysis group. So for any families that are enrolled in the Guelph Family Health Study, you might remember that we've asked you to wear a little red accelerometer device. And this is really a research grade. If you think about it, it's kind of like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. And this device actually tracks accelerations of the body over a 24-hour time period. And we ask families to wear this, if possible, for seven days. And we use log sheets as well, filled out by parents to help with our analysis. So that's my role is to, to lead the students that are working on some of that data analysis from that device. So as as the introduction said, I'm a PhD student in human health and nutritional sciences, and I actually started back with the Guelph Family Health Study in the fall of 2018 as an undergraduate student. I was doing a research project, and then I enjoyed it so much, so I stayed on as a master's student, and now I'm here as a second-year PhD student. So I've kind of done various projects within the Guelph Family Health Study, and now I'm more focused on looking at the actual like measurement devices. So as Lori introduced, looking at the accelerometers and then how we can actually improve those measurements of physical activity and sleep. So I've done both projects in physical activity and sedentary behavior and then also with sleep. Awesome. Well, it's so great to have you both on. It's always very exciting for us to have researchers that are directly part of the Guelph Family Health Study and to share what they've been working on here with us on the podcast. And one place where I think is a useful starting point for this conversation today is to ask, what are the guidelines on physical activity and sleep for children? Actually, a few years ago, there were some uh, new guidelines that were developed by the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology, or CSEP. And there were a few developed for different age groups of Canadians. So the one that I'll speak to today is the one that's probably appropriate for the Guelph Family Health Study, which is the early years. So this is children from basically birth to four years of age. And so for toddlers, so toddlers are anywhere between like one to two years of age, should have at least 180 minutes spent in any type of physical activity intensity. So that could include energetic play, and that could be spread out throughout the day. They should, for toddlers, they should have anywhere between 11 to 14 hours of good quality sleep. So that's going to include naps. The idea is to maybe have like consistent bedtimes and wake up times within that sleep. 
And then also they provide some guidelines for sitting. So trying not to be restraining toddlers for any more than one hour at a time, like in a stroller or a high chair for individuals or children who are younger than two years of age. They really recommend that sedentary screen time is limited as much as possible. And just again, if you're, if you're sedentary, they suggest maybe different types of activities that also have an educational component, like reading with your child or maybe storytelling with a caregiver, that type of things. They also suggest a different, slightly different set of guidelines for preschoolers, so for the children that are between three and four years of age. And they suggest that children at this age should have anywhere between about 180 minutes spent in a variety of different types of physical activities again throughout the day. Sleep just a little bit less from about 10 to 13 hours of good quality sleep, including naps if needed. And once again, sort of a similar idea in terms of not being restrained for more than one hour at a time, trying to limit your screen time for the children in this age as well as also recommended. Awesome. It helps to have like that kind of guideline on where, you know, what children should be aiming for. And I just had a clarifying question when when you mentioned like the different types of physical activity, what are some of the different things that fall under that umbrella for children and toddlers, I guess, in, in particular? Yeah, so Lori kind of discussed there's light physical activity, and then there is more of that moderate to vigorous physical activity, which I think in the guidelines they label as energetic play. So for light physical activity, you might think more about maybe like a light walk or um, maybe like some cleaning. Actually, cleaning is in does fall under the light physical activity bracket. Uh, but other things like playing with your toys or playing with blocks, those would all be kind of falling under more of that light physical activity. So you're not completely sedentary, but the child isn't really breaking a sweat. But then more of that moderate to vigorous physical activity, that would be more like running around, playing tag. I'm just kind of thinking about like a study that we're also doing for my PhD where we have kids doing these different types of intensities. So I'm trying to think back on some of the activities that kids have picked. So we've had kids pick uh, tag, even just running, maybe like hide and go seek where you've got kind of like some of that running coming around, going up and down stairs. So those would all fall more under that kind of energetic play where you might see a child a bit out of breath or sweating or red in the face that would kind of be considered more of that energetic play. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So how are the Guelph Family Health Study children doing with regard to meeting these physical activity and sleep guidelines? Yeah, so we're actually really exciting. We're in the process of analyzing some data um, and we're hoping to get a publication out of it. So stay tuned for that. But I can kind of speak more broadly about it. So Lori kind of discussed, I think, how the children in the Guelph Family Health Study fall into different age groups. So we have the toddlers, we have the preschoolers, and then we have some of those kids who were five years old when they were collect their data was collected at baseline. So those would be considered school age children or also are sometimes referred to as youth. So when we look at those kind of three separate categories, that would be those screen-based guidelines, the physical activity guidelines, and then the sleep guidelines, we see that for screens, roughly 40 to 70% of the children in the Guelph Family Health Study are meeting those guidelines. 
Then for physical activity, we see that roughly 60 to 100% of the kids in the study are meeting those physical activity guidelines. That's really great to see that 100%. I believe that's in the school age kids. And then lastly, for sleep. So we see here that it's roughly 20 to 40% of the children are meeting that sleep guideline. So it's interesting to see that I guess the weakest guideline that they're meeting is the sleep guideline. That is really interesting, actually, to see the different ranges. I mean, that's great, like you said, about the physical activity, the 100%. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's like definitely something that should be celebrated. Yeah, those ranges are just from the different age groups, I guess. So some some age groups are have a higher compliance rate than others, and then some have and in different categories too. So we'll have kind of more of a detailed um, report on it when that data gets published. Yeah, that's awesome. One thing just to add to that is that this is at the baseline measurement point too. So yes. yeah, so we're really curious to see maybe down the line, some of the data and what happened, like maybe during those pandemic years, we have some measures mm-hmm. as well for that. So we're really curious to see how, how things change just as life unfolded for many of our families within the Guelph Family Health Study during that time. Totally. For sure. It's very interesting. But you know what? I love the teaser, the stay tuned. We're going to be able, hopefully, to have you both on for another episode in the future and chat about this in depth. Well, it will be very interesting, I think, to see, especially that screen guideline when everything had to pivot online to being on screen. So I think that will be very interesting to look at for some of the family's six month or one year follow up data. So I'm also interested and excited to look at that data in the future. Awesome. So what are the different ways that physical activity can be measured and how is it specifically measured in the work that you do? Sure. So I'll jump in maybe on this. So in the literature, the scientific literature, there's many different ways that you can capture sleep and physical activity. So there's more of the traditional old fashioned, which is observation. So that's like pen and paper. You could use like a video camera, sort of like a GoPro. Some of my colleagues have done this approach. So you use a GoPro, you strap it to a child's, like either their backpack or something like that. And you literally, researchers kind of follow them around virtually that way. And then that data, all that video data is then digitized by students in the lab afterwards. Of course, some of my colleagues use pedometers or step counters just to try to track like the number of steps. And you may, some of the families may also have that, like a pedometer that they use or maybe on, even on their cell phone. And there's also commercial devices from examples would be like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. So we use a fancy version of that, which is a different type of accelerometer that will measure accelerations. And we use then computer algorithms to convert acceleration data into different activity intensity levels. So again, there's been some really neat calibration studies that have been done in the past where they've shown that low accelerations are associated with, for example, light physical activity. So those lower energetic plays like playing with box or reading a book, as Hannah outlined, and higher acceleration values where the kids are running around playing tag. Those have been associated with moderate to vigorous physical activity just based on more more intensive methods of calculating energy expenditures. So that's for anybody who's got a kinesiology background listening, that would be through like a a submaximal VO2 test. So that's where you look at your oxygen and how your body is using oxygen as an energy source. So there's a lot of calibration studies that have linked the accelerations back to how much energy kids are using to produce those types of movements. Yeah, that's how we track it in our physical activity data. And maybe I'll let Hannah talk a little bit about some of her her PhD work because we're trying to improve that within the literature. Because um, a lot of those algorithms, unfortunately, were 
calculated for kids that are a bit older or even for adults. There's not a lot of literature that's showing what's happening with the little kids and not at those lower intensities. And lower intensities are important because they help us track sleep, for example, and sedentary behaviors a little bit more. And at those low accelerations, that's really hard to track with an accelerometer because we don't know if the kids are just sitting quietly or if they're asleep. So that's where those log sheets that our families fill in are so helpful. Because then if we know when the children are asleep and tucked into their beds from those log sheets, it really helps us analyze that data. Yeah, so for my PhD work, what we're hoping to do is use those accelerometers or activity monitors that the kids in the Guelph Family Health Study have been wearing for those seven days. But we're also trying to combine them with another sensor. So what's actually inside that activity monitor, as Lori mentioned, is an accelerometer, which measures linear acceleration. So that kind of gives us a measure as the intensity of the physical activity or the lack of intensity. So that would be kind of more of that sleep or sedentary behavior. And then what we are hoping to do is use also gyroscopes. So gyroscopes is a bit of a more technical term. So it can measure angular velocity. And what that essentially will allow us to do is get a better idea of the posture that a child may be in. So that can help us kind of determine, is a child lying down, like flat on their back, or they may be asleep? Are they sitting reclined on the couch? Are they actually watching TV and they're not actually taking a nap. So we're hoping to use that data to kind of narrow it down and refine those methods just to get a better sense of what type of activities children are doing. And when we give them the monitor and they go away for a week, that we can better represent and reflect, I guess, what they're doing in, in that time. That's awesome. It's so cool to hear the different methods of, of measuring that you're using, especially just to get a better picture of what exactly the children are doing in terms of physical activity and movement. I think that's so cool when you brought up the part about the camera and like a GoPro, I was like, wow, that would be a really fun job to just (laughs) kind of run around with kids and just record what they're doing. And definitely I've seen the VO2 max test performed. And sadly, I was going to do one. And then the pandemic hit, so I wasn't able to do it. But it's it's a tough test, but really cool to see and, and brings really useful information. So I just thought that was so cool, the different ways that you can measure physical activity and the different methods that you all are using in your studies is really cool. Yeah. And we don't we don't bring the kids to those like maximum levels. <laughs> We just sort of bring to them like, like a sub-maxual level. So like what are they doing when they're running around and playing tag and having fun outside? So it's a, more of their normal daily range. Yeah, that's very interesting. And how about when we talk about sleep? So what are the different ways that sleep can be measured? So very similar to physical activity, in the Guelph Family Health Study, we're currently measuring sleep using those activity monitors or accelerometers, so those red devices that we send the families home that sit on the belt. And then we also use the log sheets. So the parents in the studies are probably very familiar with this. We give them these log sheets where we ask them to keep track of their child's bedtime, their child's wake-up time, and then also whenever the child removes the monitor. And then we also also ask parents in the study to complete them for themselves. So that's one way that researchers, that's how we're currently doing it. But you can also, other researchers use polysomnography, which is technically the gold standard. So what polysomnography measures, it actually measures a whole host of things. So brain waves, oxygen levels, heart rate, breathing, eye movement, leg movement. So obviously that can't be 
implemented inside somebody's home. So we use these kind of accelerometers or activity monitors to reflect those measurements that a polysomnography may be measuring. Then other researchers also will use more surveys. So there's like, for example, the PSQ3, so that's the pain and sleep questionnaire. We obviously don't use that in our population, but other researchers use that for their population. And then sleep diaries. So that's very similar to the log sheets that we have our families fill up, but sometimes they're a bit more detailed. And we actually recently, I think it was published in 2021, we did a study looking at the subjective versus objective measures that Lori and I published with Dr. Haynes and Dr. Ma and then Bridget Coyle-Lasbo, who happens to be my sister, but also at the time was an undergraduate student with the study. And we found that the parents in our study, when we compared those log sheet times to the actual accelerometer or activity monitor reported time, that parents were overestimating their child's sleep onset by 23 minutes. So that means that 20, they were thinking their child was going to sleep 23 minutes earlier than they actually were. And then they were also overestimating the wake up time by 11 minutes and on the weekdays and then 14 minutes on the weekends. So they thought their child was waking up 11 or 14 minutes later than they actually were. Those aren't huge, massive differences, but you can think that's like over the course of a week, those differences would add up. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing all of that. Also, did you mention that your sister was here? Did you Were you all here at the same time? Yes. So my sister, during the pandemic, she was living in Copenhagen on an on a undergraduate exchange oh. and then obviously got recall, recalled back by the University of Guelph and she didn't have a job because she was planning to be living there for the summer. And so Lori, Dr. Vallis offered her to volunteer and work in the lab for the summer. So that's kind of how she got into research. So she started studying the kids' sleep uh, alongside me. So I kind of recruited a colleague to work with over COVID. And then now she's actually a PhD student still in the HHNS department, but she's working with Dr. Simpson. So her research has kind of pivoted more to cardiovascular disease. That is really cool. Wow. Yeah. So it was family studying families, which I like to say. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. So fun. It was great to have Bridget in the lab. That is awesome. All right. Back to our conversation. I just got sidetracked. I was like, whoa, wow, sister. <laughs> yeah, no problem. But I wanted to ask, why is the quality of sleep and getting enough sleep so important? Yeah. So actually, when you look at those CSEP guidelines, it says it gives you obviously a number in terms of duration that we should be trying to meet for those guidelines. But then it also says the importance of getting good quality sleep and consistent sleep. So good quality sleep is important for our brain health, our emotional health and our physical health. And then on the other side, not getting enough good quality sleep also has a link for different diseases and disorders like heart disease, stroke, obesity, dementia as we age, and it affects our growth hormones, stress hormones, immune system, appetite, breathing, like it really has an overall huge effect. So I guess one of the most important things like when people ask us is that we think it's important to get good duration, good quality, and then consistent sleep schedule. 
Yeah, sleep is so important, like for all those reasons you mentioned there. And also what you mentioned about the guidelines too, about how they give that range with the duration, and then also how it states good quality sleep. What is the good quality piece there? Can How can that piece kind of be defined? Is it more than just duration? So it would be kind of like uninterrupted sleep. So one metric that we use that we get data from the children in the Guelph Family Health Study is called sleep efficiency. And that's really the ratio between the amount of time a child would spend asleep, so total sleep time, divided by the time the child spends in bed, so time in bed. And then it's reflected as a percentage. So if you thought of like a child sleeping for 100 minutes, if a child had a sleep efficiency of 90%, it would mean that they spent 90 of those 100 minutes asleep. So that's one metric we use to measure uh, sleep quality is looking at when the child's actually in bed, are they spending that time asleep or are they tossing and turning? Are they having a tough time falling asleep? So that's that's like one way to think about it. Yeah, very interesting. My loved ones and those around me definitely can tell if I've had a good night's sleep or not. And so it's so true even on um, short-term and long-term sleep really is important for our health. Is there a difference in the quality or duration of sleep between weekdays and weekends in children? So some studies have found that there are, but when we actually did, and this is actually the same study with my sister, when we actually did that study looking at the differences between weekdays and weekends in the children in the Guelph Family Health Study, specifically that preschool age group, we found that there weren't any significant differences between the weekend and weekdays. And that's not, I guess, overly surprising. If you think about the kind of schedule of a preschool child, it may not differ as much compared to like a 20-something-year-old who goes to work 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and then on the weekends might be where they get kind of that catch-up sleep. So they would be in a sleep deficit for the whole week, and then they may sleep longer or oversleep on the weekends to make up for it. Whereas if you think about a preschool child, they probably aren't experiencing that. So that's one reason that's kind of what we deduced when we found that there were no significant differences between the weekend and the weekdays. Oh, that makes sense. I I was actually very surprised when you said that with the no significant difference. But then when you broke it down, I was like, oh, yes, that makes sense. It's Mm -hmm. more of a consistent schedule. So that makes sense. Are there things that parents can do to help uh, improve their child's sleep habits? Yeah. So kind of going back to that consistency. So this is kind of a common question that we get. And I really think that having a nice routine is the best way for, for, I guess, parents to help improve or help promote good quality sleep in their children. So, you know, maybe winding down, no screens an hour before bed, going um, and brushing our teeth, maybe reading a book in bed, trying to wind down, trying to calm down, maybe not having like bright lights in the room. And so those are kind of some things that I think about. Yeah, I, I think it's hard, at, like just coming from the parental perspective I think sometimes like that bedtime routine is it's hard to maintain depending on you know different times of the year of course it's really hard if like around the holidays or special occasions but I do think um, having that nice at least most of the research is showing have that having that good consistent bedtime routine I know some families actually have told us and, and I know I use this when my children were were young just having like a chart somewhere like either in the fridge or maybe in the bathroom, something like that, like a chart that kids can 
sort of they know the bedtime routine so they can sort of like check it off or put a sticker or something like that so they know what's coming and just by having that nice consistent routine then kids know that is part of the wind down routine um so they're not you know they they know what's coming and then they look forward to like either their bath time with mom and dad or their caregiver and they look forward to that you know special book or maybe a special song that they sing with their parents um, and that sort of also helps in terms of you know maintaining that pattern what what parents can do to help kids so empowering maybe the older kids that are in preschool having a role in how do they want to do it which order they want to do things and that sometimes makes it go a little bit easier i think in terms of getting kids to buy into that bedtime routine that's awesome. You've shared some really great and tangible tips, which is really great for our parents here that are listening. And one thing too, that I think is probably pretty important to highlight, I don't have children, but I imagine that the bedtime routine sometimes is not always as easy or doesn't always go the way that you expect it to, I'm sure. So it's probably really important to just give yourself some grace during this time, you know, be kind to yourself and understand that sometimes it's not always going to go to plan despite best efforts. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, being kind to yourself and knowing that like tomorrow is a new day too. <laughs> For sure, tomorrow is a new day. That's a really good way to put it, especially, yeah. you know, at bedtime. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I do think there's also periods of growth and development where just some kids have a harder time just settling down. So if they're going through a growth spurt or if, you know, if something happened maybe at school or if there's transitions, sometimes those bedtime routines can get disrupted. But starting a new a new activity maybe or starting you know maybe a new school year those types of things can sometimes throw bedtime routines off but trying to get back into that bedtime routine i think is really is really important for sure and so switching gears a little bit and talking about the parents are there any differences between parents in terms of sleep that you've noticed in your research yeah so we're currently in the process of writing a paper looking at the differences between the mothers and fathers in the Guelph Family Health Study, but we're sort of still in that analysis phase. But I can kind of talk broadly and what kind of inspired us to start that analysis or that study. So if you think about the relationship between parental sleep and child sleep, it's often been described as cyclical. So for example, the child sleeping behaviors impact the parent's sleep and duration. So if a child were to wake up in the middle of the night, then the parent's also going to wake up in the middle of the night. And then the child sleep is then going to affect the parent's emotional and physical well-being. And then this physical well-being is then going to affect how they parent their child, which then will affect how their child sleeps. You can kind of think of it, I guess, almost as like a cyclical type behavior. And then previous research has found that, so for example, a recent systematic review that was performed by Varma et al. in 2021 was looking at the sleep of parents and children. And it found that the sleep quality and quantity of mother's sleep was strongly predicted by their child in comparison to the father's, which wasn't actually significantly associated. And so we found that really interesting. And when you look at most of the studies that have investigated this relationship between parent and child sleep, we found that a lot of them measured sleep using some of those subjective questionnaires or those subjective sleep logs. And in a lot of them, they actually asked a parent to fill out, obviously, the sleeping diary for their child. And so it would obviously bias it if you were to ask a mom to fill it out, how their child was sleeping and then how they were sleeping. They can only really successfully report on themselves. They might underestimate um, 
their partner's sleep. So for example, one study found that the moms were reporting waking up in the middle of the night to go tend to the child. And then they weren't realizing that their husband was who was sleeping next to them was also waking up. So maybe it wasn't that the husband was actually physically getting up from their bed to go tend to the child and the mother was, but the husband's sleep was still disrupted. So what we're hoping to be able to do with the Guelph Family Health Study is be able to use those kind of objective measurements that are coming from our accelerometers or activity monitors to try to close that gap. That is really fascinating. And it seems like measures are so important in this type of research, specifically, you know, which ones you're choosing to use in the work. I mean, I can't wait to have you both on again and discuss, you know, the results that you found, because that's so interesting to look at it and to see if there are any differences with parents and to kind of hear more about that work. So that's, that's really great. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that parents can improve their own sleep quality? So I think improving your own sleep quality really similar to improving like your child. So also limiting your screen time before bed, also keeping to a consistent routine. So maybe you, you know, you could put your child to bed and then you maybe if you're, if this is what your day to day looks like, like maybe doing cleanup around the house and then maybe reading a book putting away the screens before that and then getting into bed. So some it's I think it's very personal people's sleeping routine. I personally like to have some tea before bed, get out a book and then put it away. If I work later at night, then like my kind of my nervous system is going. I'm thinking about all the things that I have to do the next day and then you start actually stressing about going to sleep. Like I'm like, "Oh my gosh, like if I go to sleep in the next 15 minutes, I'm still not going to get enough. I'm not going to reach my 8 hours of sleep that I'm supposed to." And then you kind of spiral and then you end up even pushing your bedtime later than what you were hoping to. So I think just having a nice low stress evening, which might be easier said than done, is one way that parents can try to to do that. I would agree with all those things, Hannah. Those are great suggestions. Some research also shows taking electronics out of like your sleeping area that helps. So if you're not getting or turning off notifications, maybe using an old fashioned alarm clock rather than a cell phone where you might be tempted to sort of check that phone one more time before you go to sleep. Those things are also ways that the research shows that it will actually like improve your sleep uh, quality and and just getting in that habit. I think it's like anything else. Once you start the habit, it's easier to keep it going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, when you're talking about the one of those alarm clocks, I have one of those old school alarm clocks that you can actually set to start lighting up the room 40 minutes before. So for example, this morning I woke up at six. So at 520, it started to light up the room and then it reached its full brightness at six. So I sort of start to kind of wake up slowly. It's not quite as like a bright alarm, I guess, in the morning, like hearing your iPhone go off, which I actually think for me has improved my sleep. That is so interesting, actually. I've been like really trying to think more about like a personal sleeping routine for me because I am totally guilty of being the person that's just like scrolling on my phone right before I put it down to go to bed. And, you know, what you said about stressing about the fact that I'm not going to get eight hours, that's also me. I get caught in that. So I feel like especially after learning so much in this podcast here, I'm really going to try and think of, you know, what's my personal sleeping routine and how can I make this better for myself? And that alarm clock sounds like a really cool that sounds like a really cool product. I've got to ask you about that after the podcast. Maybe I'll get one for myself. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> 
the alarm clock sounded very very good and it's just so funny how technology is is very helpful I think like during the day I have like my calendar and it's great that my emails pop up and they kind of keep me on track during the day as I'm doing work but then at night it's like I need my body to start getting into that resting state and so I think removing it at that time to really like help me calm down is something that I definitely need to get better at because I I get caught up in what if I miss something and it's like no that can wait until tomorrow so I'm working on that (laughs) yeah and I also think like if we model that to our kids right which is part of what the Guelph Family Health Study is about is modeling these healthy habits that you develop at an early age Hopefully the goal is that those kids have been seeing mom and dad do those types of things and also practice it themselves. That'll kind of carry on throughout their life as they get a little bit older and they'll value sleep and they'll feel better for it too, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. You know, as they say, healthy habits, happy homes, right? (laughs) And so linking these two things together, so we've been talking about physical activity and we've been talking about sleep. What is the relationship between physical activity and sleep? I wish that we had better studies that looked at this within really young children. Like, so we're really curious about those early years within the Guelph Family Health Study. We do know, of course, that we work on a 24-hour clock. So whenever we're sleeping, obviously, that's part of that 24-hour clock. If we think about the course of that 24-hour day. So we know that, you know, obviously when you're sleeping, you're not being physically active and vice versa. What we're trying to look for, I guess, is a balance. And we know that physical activity and sleep, as Hannah mentioned before, both are really important contributors to childhood health and development. So some of the benefits that Hannah mentioned before, like physical activity helps increase bone mass and the biomechanical properties of tendons and ligaments and cartilage formation. It helps kids maintain a healthy body weight, decrease body fat, improves anxiety and depression, and sleep increases our energy, it boosts our memory and attention, it improves our concentration, and for kids, their emotional regulation, even our emotional regulation. So although we know like benefits of physical activity and the benefits of sleep, there's really very little information about how that changes over those early years. We know that kids are very young, they sleep a lot more, they tend to be more active, obviously, at the upper years, like, you know, when they're four or so. I have an undergraduate student that's looking at this right now, Katarina, and we're hoping that some of her work will start to elucidate some of the relationships between sleep and physical activity and even like health outcomes like adiposity in children. So we're hoping to explore that a little bit more with some future studies coming from the lab. Wow, that's exciting. Well, we're definitely excited to hear the results of of those studies. And it's always just very interesting to hear all of the positive outcomes that come out of really prioritizing our physical activity and sleep uh, for children and and in all ages. With that being said, sometimes it can be very hard to actually like those guidelines. So what are some common barriers or challenges parents face with regard to their child's sleep and physical activity? And what are some strategies to overcome them? Yeah, so maybe I'll start with kind of some more broad barriers that many people experience in terms of barriers to physical activity. And then maybe Lori can give more of that kind of parental perspective. So often when we think about different barriers to physical activity, we think about lack of time, social influence. So that would also, if we're thinking about in the context of a family, that might be like your parents' influence or your siblings' influence, lack of energy, 
lack of willpower, fear of injury. So that might be not necessarily for younger children. But if you're thinking about maybe like as we're all aging and getting older, that would be a big one, I guess, for older adults. Lack of skills. So if you're thinking about like a specific type of physical activity, if someone's not confident in maybe like if you were to think about kids in the neighborhood or playing soccer, maybe a child is unsure about their lack of ability to participate in that and then lack of resources. So not everybody has access to different equipment or facilities. There are other activities that they could be able to do. So for example, maybe more of that kind of outdoor play with neighbors or something like that. Yeah. So those are some of the barriers and maybe I'll highlight some of the facilitators. So these are maybe things that, you know, parents can jump in and help with. So sometimes it's like skills practice. So you can maybe work with your, as Hannah mentioned, like if a a child doesn't feel comfortable joining in like a neighborhood game of soccer, you know, maybe just working with them to develop those skills. And that can be in a Timbit soccer program, or it could be, you know, just going in the backyard and, and just practicing kicking, for example. It could also be involving some of their peers. So play dates and just getting involved. Never underestimate as well family support. So having your know, mom and dad sort of encouraging, it really does matter to children in this age. So lots of positive re-encouragement, I think, just keeps kids interested in being fit and active. And then, of course, information, like having a conversation as a family, like this is why it's important to us as a family. So I do think modeling that behavior is really important. Um, I listened to a podcast myself not that long ago, and the research is, was from the participation report card for kids that are slightly older, so 5 to 17 years of age. And this was coming out of the CBC, the current program. The um, interviewer and, and interviewee were talking about the fact that Canadians are really an indoor society. So one of the things that they were talking about was get outside with your kids and and to play and sort of model that behavior and carve aside some time that as a family together, you're, you're becoming physically active and you're really modeling the same behaviors in terms of your sleep hygiene as well. Great tips. And I think as you were talking, it just got me thinking about my siblings and and my parents. It's actually my sister's birthday today. So she just turned 12. You know, I I really have to applaud parents. I I think they're superheroes. They they would often have playdates with her and her friends. And, you know, we'd all like after dinner, there's a, a middle school not too far from our home. So we would all like run around the track and be playing random games and joking with each other, have very random like dance parties. And so, you know, modeling that behavior of working out or even just seeing mom and dad do like at home workouts or, or go for a run, it made my siblings and I like very excited to want to do that as well. And then my bonus mom is also a a nurse. So uh, she would love to sit us down and talk to us about all the benefits of (laughs) eating nutritiously and getting our bodies moving. So uh, modeling, it it just is very important. And I'm, I'm grateful that they gave us that mindset that physical activity, sleep is just really important from a young age. Absolutely. And just to highlight, another one of the barriers that that Hannah mentioned was cost. And I think sometimes in our society, we think like, you know, we've got to sign our kids up for very expensive endeavors like hockey or dance, those types of things. And that just may not be achievable for many families. And, And I guess I just wanted to also just point out that I loved your example about just running around the track. I think that's great or having a dance party. It doesn't have to be, it could be if your community has an ice rink outside, joining friends out there on the ice rink and making it fun for the kids. Or maybe it's going for 
you know, a hike or like a scavenger hunt in nature on the weekends. And again, I think if you prioritize that time together as a family, again, if you think about that 24 hour clock, you've got to have a certain amount of time sleeping and of course, working and preparing food and eating food. And if you prioritize physical activity in that 24 hour period, you know, then maybe afterwards there's some time available to maybe watch a movie as a family. And so there's still time for those screen based activities if that's something that your family enjoys. But maybe trying to prioritize the other stuff, the physical activity and sleep and eating well, make that a priority. And then hopefully, again, those habits will, will sort of follow the, your children throughout life. Definitely. I think that's such a good point too. It's really just thinking about it as, you know, moving our body in ways that we enjoy and being together. And it doesn't have to be something that's, you know, organized, like you mentioned, doesn't have to be like a hockey program or anything like that, but just thinking about spending that time together and enjoying it and moving our body in a way that, you know, we find brings us joy. To close out the podcast, we like to give families three take-home tips. What are three take-home tips you can share with our listeners about physical activity and sleep? My first tip in terms of both sleep and physical activity is make your goals attainable and maintainable. So I always think about if you're adopting like an exercise routine, you don't want to become like crazy ambitious. That's it's going to be result in something that's not realistic. And then you eventually won't be like, you'll end up, I guess, giving up on the goal, or maybe it's just too much and you lose motivation for it. So I always think like if somebody's going to take up running, they're not going to run a marathon the next month. They might have a goal of running a 5k. So I think that's kind of applicable for families too. So if you're trying to become more of a physically active family, then you're going to want to set a goal that's attainable for your family. So maybe that's, you know what, this week we're going to walk to school two times this week. And then maybe the goal is ultimately in two months from then to walk every single day to school or something like that. I think just making it attainable and maintainable is so important. Sure. And I'll jump in on that. I think to follow up, one of my tips would be to be kind to yourself. We talked about this earlier in the podcast. Day-to-day family life is really busy. So I think if you look at your physical activity and sleep through a daily lens, maybe it might be, you might be disappointed with it. But if you look at it, you know, over the picture of a week, find some time each week to just reflect back on what worked and what didn't work with regards to your health behavior goals and physical with like, again, through the lens of physical activity and sleep. And then you can make adjustments for next week. So that didn't go so great. And um, what would we like to do as a family, discuss it as a family. I think that, you know, being kind to yourself and just resetting those goals or adjusting them is a something that, that will just keep you on track, as Hannah said, to make sure that you're attaining the long-term goals. And then maybe a last one, I think probably this is for both Lori and I, and I think we've kind of said this throughout this podcast, is just make it fun. So think about stuff as a family, what you want to do. That would be both things that you could do in the wintertime, because we are in Canada, and then also in the summertime. So maybe get outside like on a Saturday as a family outside in the backyard in the winter and make a snowman or go tobogganing. Or if your family skis, go skiing, like something that you can do, I guess, that kind of builds that family rapport, but then also gets you outside and gets you moving. And then in the summer, maybe that's biking around the block or going to the playground or something like that. I think it's just so important to make it fun and not like it's a chore. I think if we kind of think about it like, oh, this, I have to get up and I have to make it like a chore. I have to reach my 60 minutes of physical activity. I don't think it needs to be that way. I think it can be more fun, have different snippets throughout the day if that's what works for you and your kids. So I think that's how I would end it off is make it fun. (laughs) 
Yeah, and if you're looking for ways to make it fun, um, we had one of our students that was part of the Guelph Family Health Study a few years ago develop a really a couple of really great ideas. So there's like little bingo cards for different activities that you can do together. There's lots of great resources on the Guelph Family Health Study website for that. So if you're looking for rainy day activities, if you can't get outside, you need to stay inside, or even if you can get outside, if you're looking for different ideas, there's some great resources on our website that you can check out. Awesome. Thank you so much for those tips. And uh, that bingo activity sounds really, really cool. So we'll go ahead and and look up some of those resources and have them linked below so that uh, families can have easy access to that. Thanks so much for having us. No problem. Thank you both so much, Dr. Vallis and Hannah, for taking the time to chat with us about physical activity and sleep and for sharing your extensive knowledge and your research with us here on the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. There's so much exciting research that you're both working on, and we have some teasers in place. So, you know, we'll all stay tuned and hopefully get to hear more about your work here on the podcast in the future. That's great. A huge thank you to all of our families for all the work that you put in together to help us get some really great data. And we're excited to continue to share back our results to all of our family participants and, and friends of the podcast and friends of the Guelph Family Health City. Amazing. We hope our listeners enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.